Now, later this year, as you all well know, Australia will host a referendum on a very crucial constitutional issue. Uh, changing the constitution to ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' views are better represented in Parliament. Now, there is currently no mention of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Australian constitution. And the matter before us raises several important questions. Is the voice about giving Indigenous Australians a right to express their views on policy through representatives elected by their communities? Or would the voice provide cover for an activist government to legislate policy without genuine democratic consent? Does the lack of a formal structure within the state for Aboriginal Australians contribute to laws and policies that drive the gap and disparity between non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australians? Or could the vast amount of tax dollars and resources be better spent directly in remote Indigenous communities? Well, tonight, our debate will address the motion that in the Prime Minister's words will be put forward in this year's referendum. Quote, this is the motion, we need to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. That is the motion. Again, we need to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Now, each speaker has eight minutes. The bell will ring at the seven minute mark, so with one minute to go. And the rules are pretty simple. There'll be a first speaker for the affirmative, then a first speaker for the negative, a second speaker for the affirmative, and a second speaker for the negative. And then the affirmative side will briefly respond to the negative side before the negative side responds to the affirmative side. And then we will take your questions. And several questions have come via Zoom. Now, finally, it goes without saying, and this is an important rule, and anyone who's been to CI's events know this, uh, we uh, love to speak above and beyond that toxic polarisation that all too often characterises public discourse across the Western world. So we treat all schools of thought, both the affirmative and the negative, with great respect. And that way, the discussion will be elevated. So please bear that in mind throughout the night. Now for the debate. Our first speaker for the affirmative is Tony McAvoy. Tony is Australia's first Indigenous senior counsel and between 2011 and 2013, Tony was acting part-time commissioner of the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. Tony was also acting Northern Territory Treaty Commissioner from the period of late 2021 to 2022. Please welcome Tony McAvoy. Thank, thank you, Tom. Thank you, CIS. Um, I acknowledge that we're on the lands of the Gadigal people. Uh, I won't waste any time. Um, Friends and colleagues, I'm here to tell you that the referendum will pass. Of this, I'm certain. But that is not the question for this debate. This debate asks whether the reform is necessary. And the answer to that question, like the answer to the referendum question, is a resounding yes. Now, in coming here tonight, I've assumed that each of the speakers are motivated by their own sense of the urgent need for change and that none are of the view that things should remain the way they are at present. We're all experienced 
in matters that impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Uh, Jacinta, Warren and I all have families and communities and First Nations of which we are members. We have all seen and continue to see our families affected by poverty and disadvantage. We've seen over-incarceration of our family, child removal and deaths in custody. And we've seen discrimination. I say that with confidence. Even though I haven't done any research into Jacinta's family, I know Warren's family, but I can say that with confidence because every Aboriginal family I know is in the same position. We all suffer in this way. Now, there are also a number of ways in which I need to distinguish myself from the rest of the panel in order to facilitate answering the, the question. Um, I'm not in the habit of talking about myself in this way and I usually cringe when bios are read in full, but on this occasion, for this discussion, it is necessary. I'm not a member, nor have I ever been a member of a political party. I have given free advice to numerous parties when asked. I'm a litigator, I'm a negotiator, and I'm a mediator. And in fact, last week on Friday night, I was uh, awarded the Australian Indigenous Mediator of the Year Award. I have negotiated complex Indigenous land use agreements with governments and mining companies. Um, I've, uh, I've negotiated the only attempt at a First Nations treaty in Australia. That was for the Narunga people on the York Peninsula in South Australia prior to the change of government in, in 2018. I've been a commissioner, as you've heard, on the, on the New South Wales Land Environment Court and I'm currently a commissioner of the New South Wales Independent Planning Commission. I'm also chair of a traditional owner corporation for my own people and a director on the New South Wales Aboriginal Legal Service. I have been inside Dondale Youth Detention Centre and inside Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre and many others across the country. I've been inside many adult prisons. I've visited a prison cell in which my own uncle died when my grandmother asked me to accompany her to inspect that cell. I've also had extensive policy experience and it was in a, I was in a role in the New South Wales Department of Aboriginal Affairs for six years, including a period of registrar under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act. I've been a member of uh, and most recently chair of policy committees at the New South Wales Bar Association Law Council of Australia and the Australasian Institute of Judicial Administration. I've taken this time out of my short period that's allotted to me to, uh, to remind you uh, of my experience because it's my view that in the areas of policy formulation, program development oversight, I have an understanding and oversight of these matters that the other members of this panel do not have. I do not say this in any disrespectful manner. Uh, it, it is an objective truth. I have experience and understanding of government structures and cultures that others haven't had the opportunity to have. My experience tells me this. There are deeply embedded structural impediments to the empowerment of local communities to be the decision makers and take control of their own destinies. Although it is necessary for there to be leadership at the top levels of government for the reform processes to work, the best intentions usually get lost in the implementation and the delivery by the bureaucracy. 
In some cases, it is entrenched structural and institutional racism, but in others, it is simply government's inability to share power. This is why, even after the Dondale Royal Commission recommendations were adopted by the Northern Territory Government, they weren't implemented. This is why the Royal Commission and Aboriginal Deaths in Custody recommendations have never been fully implemented. For instance, one of the key recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was to use community-controlled alternatives to custody. However, what this uh, mostly translated to is government-controlled and operated facilities with some First Nations employees. The correctional services agencies around the country refused to let go. We see this in the prosecution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people when they are hunting and fishing, and we see this across government. There is a, a, a refusal to recognise that Aboriginal people can do things for themselves. In my view, a voice would be able to drive the policy change that recognises decisions made by First Nations have the greatest chances of success. It would be able to monitor and hold to account those agencies that are charged with divesting their authority and resources to those communities. But equally importantly, a voice would ensure we are able to be represented in the major policy decisions that, are, that shape the country and affect our people. We must be able to fierce, fearlessly present our positions and engage in the policy debate. For this reason, the voice must be embedded in the Constitution. It cannot be the case that whenever we engage in robust advocacy, we are fearful that uh, our voice will be abolished, just as that's it was. The ability to have these robust discussions will also make our country a better place. It will signal to the world that we are a young country that is growing up, that we desire to move beyond the colony. It is something, it will be something that is symbol, symbolic and functional. A thing that we can all be proud of. I haven't descended into the legal discussion um, and I don't understand this to be a legal debate, but I, I um, will welcome any questions um, at the conclusion of this discussion. Thank you very much. Tony, thank you very much. And Jacinta Price, uh, she is, of course, a country Liberal Party senator from the Northern Territory, and she's a past uh, a deputy uh, mayor of Alice Springs. Of course, uh, Jacinta worked here at CIS from early 2018 until last year when she was elected to parliament. And she's the author of a CIS paper in 2021 called Worlds Apart, Remote Indigenous Disadvantage in the Context of a Wider Australia. Please welcome Jacinta. very much, Tom, and thank you all uh, this evening. It is, it's lovely to be back here uh, at CIS. It feels like it's, it's been um, long overdue. Uh, well, you know a bit about my background, um, so I, I, I won't go on too much. I will get straight into my argument. In 2006, African-American author and expert in race relations, multiculturalism and affirmative action, Shelby Steele, authored his book, White Guilt, 
how blacks and whites together destroyed the promise of the civil rights era. In it, Steele recounted his experience growing up in the civil rights era. His work as a civil rights activist and what he witnessed in the decades since. He reflected on what he called a moral vacuum, a period where whites had forfeited the moral authority due to their own guilt about American history. In the book he wrote, most any time race is given importance, positively or negatively, People are hiding from their true motivations. In the age of racism, whites said blacks were inferior so as not to see their own desire to exploit them, their true motivation. In the age of white guilt, whites support all manner of silly racial policies without seeing that their true motivation is simply to show themselves innocent of racism. Despite attempts to rewrite it in Australian history, is notably different from that of the United States. And yet we undoubtedly are experiencing a similar period. We're living in a time where some Australians are feeling guilty for events of the past and the impacts that some are still feeling today. And others are more than happy to take advantage of that. No one can deny that Australians have done a lot, spent a lot and given a lot in the name of correcting those wrongs. But so long as there is something to be gained from victimhood, we will forever have victims. It's my belief that in the name of recognition and an attempt to undo the wrongs of the past, some Australians are attempting to enshrine a dangerous, divisive and costly mistake into the Constitution. For the purposes of our debate tonight, we must acknowledge that the proposed voice body is not simply a means of recognition. It is a Trojan horse and a transfer of power. The voice movement is a dangerous attempt to undermine democracy and the fundamental belief of equality between citizens. What may have started as an act of goodwill, as a simple and modest gesture, has become a legal nightmare that would give a chosen few the ability to bring government to a halt. When Prime Minister Albanese released the wording of his proposed constitutional amendment, legal experts on both sides of the debate came out strongly to condemn, warn against and celebrate the broad powers that the voice would have. Greg Craven, a constitutional expert, said that the proposed change was, quote, far worse than I had contemplated, the worst position being. Key architect of the Uluru Statement and one of 
the members of the working group, who came up with the final wording, said, Parliament will not be able to shut the voice up and the Indigenous body will speak to all parts of the government, including the Cabinet, ministers, public servants, as well as statutory officers and agencies from the Reserve Bank to Centrelink. These powers include the ability to challenge in the High Court any decisions made by the executive on which the voice feels it was not properly listened to. The voice is an inherently divisive body, enshrining into the Constitution special powers for one group based solely on racial heritage. Reference to specific race was removed from the Constitution in 1967. And after 55 years of work, to close the gap and become one people, this proposed amendment seeks to enshrine it in an exclusive body. It draws a line between Indigenous Australians and everyone else and labels one group as different, as other, as in perpetual need of special help, perpetual victimhood. Despite claims the voice was born out of consensus of Indigenous Australians and the message that we should vote yes because they asked us for it, the reality is that the voice is even dividing Indigenous Australians. As you can see before you, as Warren and I are proof of, not all Indigenous Australians want the voice. It should be perfectly obvious to everyone, not all Indigenous peoples think the same. Throughout the Uluru Statement process, there has been dissent, disagreement between Indigenous leaders and communities. Yet we're being asked to say yes to a body that they claim would, and we do not even know how yet, represent all of us on issues that apparently impact all of us. If you have seen on TV the problems impacting my hometown right now, you'd know that they are hugely different to those faced by Aboriginal people in Marrickville. In addition to being a costly mistake to many other ways, the voice also represents a significant financial cost. Current funding for Indigenous issues in Australia is estimated to be around $100 million per day, about $4 for every Australian per day, and Australians are being asked to spend a few hundred million or more on a referendum. In that referendum, Australians are being asked to write a blank cheque to the government to set up and fund a whole new body with no detail of how it would work. The voice to Parliament is not the product of extensive consultation with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. It is a product of conversations with a few and signatures of 250. The voice of Parliament will undermine the principles of democracy and the equality that underpins them and grants special powers to a few. Jacinta, thank you.
And now for the second speaker for the affirmative side, Shireen Morris. Dr. Morris is a constitutional lawyer and she teaches constitutional law, constitutional reform and Indigenous constitutional recognition at Macquarie University here in Sydney. Shireen is co-author of the book, A Rightful Place, A Roadmap to Recognition, that's published by Black Ink Books. Please welcome Shireen. I remember the great elder, Yunupingu, who for decades led Indigenous advocacy for serious constitutional reform and recognition. The Yolungu Bark petitions of 1963 asked for their people to be heard in decisions made about them and their land. The 1998 Barunga Statement asked for a treaty and a national Indigenous body to give them a say in Indigenous affairs. Following decades and decades of similar advocacy around the country, the Uluru Statement forged an unprecedented national consensus on how Indigenous people want to be constitutionally recognised. They asked for a constitutionally guaranteed voice in laws and policies made about them. Not a veto, just a fairer say when governments make decisions about their communities. Now, Indigenous people weren't represented in the constitutional conventions that founded the nation. Though they've lived here for over 60,000 years, the constitution contained clauses explicitly excluding them and has presided over much injustice against them. There were laws denying Indigenous people the vote in some jurisdictions right up until the 60s. Government policies withheld Indigenous wages, removed Indigenous children from their families, controlled where they could live, who they could marry, and of course denied their property rights. Now the problem is the 1967 didn't, referendum didn't fully fix the problem. That referendum gave Parliament a special power which it only ever uses to make laws about Indigenous Australians. But the referendum didn't ensure that those laws and policies made about Indigenous affairs would be fair, nor did it ensure that Indigenous communities would get a fair say in the laws and policies made about them. So top-down, ineffective policymaking continue. Today, governments in far-off Canberra still misinterpret Indigenous needs and deliver few practical outcomes. Despite goodwill and money spent, Australia is failing abysmally to close the gap because governments don't partner with Indigenous communities. They think they know best. Take Alice Springs. Indigenous communities were warning of the harm that would ensue if the alcohol bans lapsed. But even with 11 Indigenous politicians in Parliament, government didn't listen. If communities had a guaranteed voice in their own affairs, maybe they would have been heard and much suffering could have been avoided. And take Dukan Gorge. Indigenous communities had been trying to talk to Minister Susan Lay about the risk to their sacred site, but she refused to engage and 43,000 years of Australian heritage was destroyed. Indigenous politicians in Parliament could not stop this. A constitutional requirement to at least hear community concerns might have helped. And a voice isn't about erasing Indigenous diversity. It's about empowering the WIC, the Yolngu, the Yorta Yorta. It's about enabling local solutions to local problems through partnership and mutual responsibility. Giving Indigenous people a voice in their affairs will not divide Australians by race. The Constitution has contained racially discriminatory provisions since 1901. 
and contains a race-based power wielded only over Indigenous people. A voice would simply ensure that those powers are wielded with Indigenous input. This is about fixing the discrimination of the past, including those previously excluded. The constitutional drafting has been refined over time. The concept of a constitutional voice emerged through collaboration with Cape York Institute and constitutional conservatives like now Shadow Attorney General Julian Lisa, Professor Greg Craven, Damian Freeman and Anne Toomey in 2014. The whole intent was to empower Indigenous communities with a voice while upholding the constitution and respecting parliamentary supremacy. And the concept has always included advice to the executive. Toomey published our agreed drafting in 2015 and in 2016, Julian Lisa praised that drafting as a constitutionally conservative solution. He wrote, it is the kind of machinery clause that Griffith, Barton and their colleagues might have drafted had they turned their minds to it. In their 2021 submission to the voice co-design process, Craven and Freeman publicised their involvement in early drafting discussions. They praised the drafting they co-created, which included advice to the executive, calling it legally sound. It will not undermine the supremacy of parliament or give rise to uncertainty in the High Court's interpretation of the Constitution, they said. And in their January 2023 paper for CIS, Craven and Freeman noted that this same 2015 drafting that they co-created, which included advice to the executive, provided, I quote, the basis for the Prime Minister's simplified drafting, released at Gama in 2022. Now, this directly contradicts Craven's false assertions that the reference to executive is new or that the government's drafting has been corrupted by so-called Indigenous radicals. To the contrary, the drafting has become more modest over intervening years. The tabling procedure has been dropped. Any requirement for parliamentarians to consider the advice has been dropped. And the government's recent drafting refinement gives Parliament even more power to control all matters relating to the voice, including the legal effects of its representations. This confirms parliamentary supremacy. Speaking of self-contradictions, I agree with what Warren Mundine wrote in his 2017 essay, which argued for the Constitution to be amended to give voice to First Nations mobs. Go read it if you don't believe me. It's online and it's in a book I co-edited. Warren said correctly that the voice has to be rooted in local and regional communities. I totally agree. And that's the intention. The intention in the LNP co-design voice report and the intention that the government's design principles make clear. So in conclusion, this referendum boils down to a moral question about who we are as a country and who we want to be in the future. Do Indigenous communities deserve to be recognised in the constitution from which they were wrongfully omitted in 1901? And do they deserve a guaranteed voice, not a veto, just an advisory, non-binding voice 
when parliament and government make laws and policies about their communities? Will Yunupingu and his people finally get their wish? That's the question Australians have to answer. Thank you. Shireen, thank you very much. And now to the second speaker for the negative side, Warren Mundine. Warren is, among other things, uh, Director of Indigenous Affairs here at CIS, and he's the author of several books, including Warren Mundine in Black and White, Race, Politics and Changing Australia, as published by Pantera Press. And he's also co-editor with our CIS colleague, Peter Curdy of Beyond Belief, Rethinking the Voice to Parliament, and that's published by Connor Court. Please welcome Warren. And, and all... Um on sale at a, a very good bookstores around the country <laughs> at very reasonable prices. Um, I would want to pay respect to Mr Yunupingu's uh, passing uh, because I do have a, a kinship relationship with the people up in the Yungle country uh, through my brother and, uh, and children. Um, so it, it was a, a great champion who passed away. For me, I'm, I'm a pretty simple bloke. I, I don't argue with with, um, with Tony because uh, Tony and I work on, on cases. Uh, he with, with some incredible lawyers. In fact, I think it was one of the native title outcomes that was a complete Indigenous, you know, Aboriginal um, lawyer team that did that up in of my country, Bundjalung country. So, so I don't question any of his uh, his, his skills and his knowledge. And that at all. In fact, uh, I, I'm very proud of what he's achieved. And 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 I'd also look at uh, Serena, same as her. We worked on some things together as well. For me, I'm just a a simple bloke. I'm a businessman. I work in business. In fact, I was just doing something. We're going through a 190 million dollar fundraiser, uh, capital raise at the moment. And, on the global stage, and I, do, and I deal with those issues on a daily basis. For me, it is, I'm a practical man. I, I, I'm outcome driven. Uh, I'm a great believer in the economic development of Australia as well as the economic development of Indigenous Australians as well. And I'll talk through some of those things at all. And Shireen, had raised the issue that I spoke about in, was it 2016, 2017? 70, that's right, which is true. And I am, a, and why is that true? Because I'm a First Nations person. I believe in First Nations. I'm not a great fan of people sitting in Canberra making decisions about Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islanders. I'm a great believer in recognition of those First Nations as the true are country people who can only speak for country and who only can make decisions for country. And I've been very strong in that, even if I disagreed with with people. When people make decisions about mining projects, pro or, or negative, I've supported every one of those Aboriginal people who made those decisions because it's their country, it is their voice, and that's the voice that needs to be heard. We need to have governments who are at all levels, state, territory, federal and local, who speak directly to those countrymen 
and country women and making decisions about their lives and their things that, it, that involve them. Yes, there have been many uh, great policies over the years, but there have been and bad policies, but the good ones have been stifled by the implementations, how they happened, and so on. But there have been some great things because I've always believed in uh, the economic power of people if they really want to be able to break out of poverty and to move ahead. I gave a speech to the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council many years ago and I said, what is the number of farmers, percentage of farmers in New South Wales? And and it was 1%. I said, what is the percentage of Aboriginals in New South Wales? And they said, 3%. So why are people not listening to Aboriginals? And it is about economic power. So I've taken that road of empowering people for economic stuff. And here are some of the statistics when we, and I was chair of the Prime Minister's Advisory Council. People only remember Abbott, but I was also uh, for several years um, Turnbull's advisor as well on Indigenous issues. And those things that I focused on were, were how do we lift people out of poverty? And the only way to do that is for an economy. And so we... You know, we started out in 2015 with the IPP. Needs a bit of a shake-up these days, but, uh, you know, it's it a good start. $6.2 million was going to Indigenous businesses from the federal government. As of this year, it's $6.9 billion. So within 80 years, eight years, we was able to drag that up. We've got 45,434 people now employed in the Indigenous business sector. We have, uh, you look at the mining industry and that, it's, you know, the Indigenous business industry put together, that's $4.9 billion annually going into that sector. The growth of Indigenous business has been going up since that time by 117%. I see these things as the answer to Indigenous poverty. I see the answer to this in regard to crime. I see the answer to this in ways that uh, really work uh, for Aboriginal people out. And I'll be quite frank, uh, when Ken Wyatt became the, uh, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, that all went out the window. They set up a committee called the Coalition of the Peak. No business people on that. No one knew anything about that. And it stalled. The whole process stalled. He also defunded Aboriginal education by several million dollars. So if you look at me and say I'm a friend of Ken White, I'm not. He's stifled our growth and he's caused massive problems. So for me, having voices which have been there since 1973 have not made a difference. My argument is about empowering those First Nation people recognising those First Nation people, and I, and I do believe in recognition within the Constitution, recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the first people of this country. And for us, I'm very proud of some things that have come out of this debate, and that is the generosity of the Australian people. They get bagged all the time about being racist and stuff, but when you talk about getting recognition of Aboriginal people within the Constitution, you'll get about 90% tick. And how do I know that? We did polling. You'll get a 90% tick. And so, so for me, it is about 
practical things and how do you uh, build environments for people to be able to be free, to make their own choices and to move forward. I see the voice and I've, I've got a, a critique coming out in the next couple of days in regard to the critique of the Kalmar Langton review and that will as a five series review of that paper and it is going to be pretty damning of that paper. I see that the, putting in place a second bureaucracy around Indigenous people, creating regions when we got our own nations as, as going in the wrong direction and actually st- going to be stifling the development of our communities. Thank you. Thanks, Warren. And I forgot to mention, and I should stress, that um, Warren's most recent publication for CIS is called Joining the Real Economy, Mapping the Economic Potential of Remote Indigenous Communities, and copies are available on our website, cis.org.au. Now I think it's appropriate for a representative of the affirmative side uh, to have a few minutes to respond to the main arguments of the negative side, and on that I call upon Tony. We can split it, but try to be very brief, maybe two and a half, three minutes each. Tony and then Shireen. Tony. Thank you, Tom. I'm used to promising that I'll only be a few moments and then talking for quite a period. So it's one of the uh, tricks of the trade. Look, um, I, want to th- I want to thank uh, uh, Warren and Jacinta for their presentations. Um, uh, one of the things that I mentioned to you earlier was that I'm a I'm a litigator and I'm a negotiator and much of the negotiation I have done has been on behalf of First Nations um, in the native title space. And I'll I'll say this as briefly as I can. In all those negotiations and all those settlement negotiations, we come up against policy positions that the individual First Nation cannot shift. We come up against situations where... Notwithstanding, notwithstanding that the whole country understands that there is uh, uh, fire stick farming which has gone on for tens of thousands of years, managing the land by using fire, there are state governments who will not agree to recognising that native title right for policy reasons. And when you're, with, when you're representing an individual nation in the negotiations, it's impossible to move the state on those big policy matters. You can't do it from a single nation. It has to be at the top end that those discussions are had. We have similar problems in relation to um, joint management of national parks, joint management of marine parks. We have similar problems with respect to hunting, Um, and fishing. So the people on the south coast of New South Wales are being prosecuted every week. I've represented 11 different people now on prosecutions. None of those prosecutions have been successful and they're being prosecuted for fishing for abalone on their own country. And as much as we've tried to get the government to to change its policy, it it doesn't change its policy because we don't have the levers to, to force that change. It can't be done from the individual First Nation position. I wish it could. I wish it could. I've tried and I've tried 
And it's heartbreaking to be in a negotiation where your opponent says, no, well, that's, that's off the table. We can't change that. Thanks, Tony. Um, I'm just a bit confused after listening to Warren because he's saying on the one hand that he supports practical outcomes, which I think we all do. We all want better practical outcomes in Indigenous communities. But the no case, if anyone's been reading the news, are pushing for a form of constitutional recognition that's totally symbolic. So the no case want to have a symbolic preamble that recognises migrants and Indigenous people. Um, So firstly, this idea was slapped down immediately by migrants. They called it offensive and divisive. Uh, Migrants and their descendants, I'm one of them, um, understand that this is about recognising the rightful place of Indigenous people in the country. Secondly, the idea of symbolic recognition was rejected by Indigenous people through the Uluru Statement because they said symbolism's not enough, we're sick of tokenism. They said they want practical, real outcomes for their communities and that's why they wanted a voice to improve laws, policies and outcomes. And the idea of a preamble's been rejected by experts, including conservative constitutional experts, who warn that uh, it could change the interpretation of the whole constitution. And finally, Australians have rejected the idea of a preamble. We rejected it resoundingly in 1999. So this idea of a preamble is is a really dud idea, uh, but that seems to be the headline idea of the no case. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Serena. Now it's time for the negative side to respond to the affirmative, and I call on Jacinta. Jacinta Price. Thank you very much. Um, there's one thing that I, I do agree with um, that Tony had mentioned was the need for reform. There is absolutely absolutely the need to do what we've never done, which is reform the organisations that have funded the millions of dollars that are responsible for closing the gap. We have never done that. That is where we need to begin. Um, There is absolutely no guarantee that constitutionally enshrining a voice is going to provide the outcomes that we we all share, that we all seek for Indigenous Australians. The aim is to close the gap. However... To suggest that we enshrine a voice suggests that we will perpetually have a gap. So it defeats the purpose of what it is we're attempting to accomplish. On one hand, we're told in Shireen's argument that the governments don't listen to those of us, those of us who are elected to Parliament about the circumstances happening in our own hometown. And I would admit Albanese has utterly ignored the fact that I have called out to him and told him what would happen in my hometown if alcohol restrictions were lifted. So how then can we be sure that leaving the responsibility to the parliament to create the voice within the constitution is going to guarantee the outcomes that we're in fact after? When it comes to the Uluru Statement, again, the Aboriginal people that I speak to feel left out completely from those negotiations. They feel disenfranchised by other Aboriginal people in powerful positions. 
We need to sort out our own issues as Indigenous Australians before we go and constitutionally enshrine a voice that supposedly represents each and every one of us. That is where most of our problems lie. The people that I represent, the grassroots Indigenous Australians who were ignored during those consultations, they do not support the voice going forward because of the fact that it is their firm belief that if their voices were being ignored, then their voices will be ignored by the voice. And that is why I do not support the voice to parliament. Thank you. Warren, one of the things about this is trust. Who do we trust in this whole debate? And I'm, a, as I said, I'm a practical man, so I see uh, what people's actions are more importantly than what they, their mouth says. And what I've seen over the years, I've been around a long time, it may surprise you that I'm, uh, I'm an old bloke. So I know you're looking at me thinking, gee, he's young, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, Albanese, as the Prime Minister, has really, really let us down in the trust section. He was asked several questions by the, deputy, uh, by the leader of the opposition. He didn't answer them. He was asked to release the uh, Solicitor General's uh, qualification, uh, what he was saying about the, uh, the voice of Parliament. And I don't know what it was, positive or negative or whatever. No one knows, really, except the people who was in that room. Uh, so, you know, when I see these things like Albanese going to Alice Springs, he was only went there because he was dragged there by the media and then he uh, disappeared after a few hours and you've got – it's not only Alice Springs. Alice Springs is the tip of the iceberg. You see Laverton, you see community – after community to Juna and that. Prior to the COVID, I spent three days a week in Aboriginal communities across Australia uh, uh, talking to people, listening to people. I always do three things. You listen, you observe, and then you talk. And and I just was shocked how bad things had gone backwards. The biggest problem we have is not is yes, we have a problem with the disparity between Aboriginals and non-Aboriginals, but that's nothing compared to the disparity between regional and remote Aboriginals and Aboriginals in cities and large provincial towns. It is a disaster and it's going backwards. And I, I really do not trust people who have been put in this position to, to campaign for the voice. And it seems to me like a happy, clappy, if you... And, then, and also I don't like being racially abused too. Uh, by people like Noel Pearson and and um, and uh, uh, Brett Walker and a few other people, uh, when my track record, I, I would say, in Indigenous affairs is second to none. My fight for First Nations, my fight for belief in the Aboriginal people, is has never ever, um, you know, shifted. Thank you. Let's just uh, get started with a question. From the affirmative to the negative, sorry, from the negative to the affirmative, uh, Jacinta uh, makes the point that uh, in quoting the distinguished African-American intellectual Shelby Steele, that identity politics is ultimately very divisive because it seeks to divide people by race, religion and gender. And Jacinta makes the point that the proposal on offer is dangerous, divisive, it could lead to a legal nightmare. Um, and undermine democracy. Your response? That quote comes from an, uh, um, an American perspective. 
In Australia, what we have are people who exist within nations that long, long predated the arrival of the British. The First Nations that existed here have been found by the Federal Court of Australia to have our own unique systems of law, our own religions, our own systems of governance. And by those continuing uh, rights and and laws, um, we have a continuing place in this society. It's not just here, it's in in all colonial nations. The the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People crystallises that at the international level. It says people in the position of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples, First Nations, have the right to self-determination. The right to self-determination. And the right to expect uh, our free prior informed consent to be obtained with respect to matters that affect our rights. It's about that status. And one of the problems that people have in Australia is is recognising that this is an issue of political status that that manifests itself as a a particular group of people being uh, disadvantaged, but it's about status. How do we as a nation moving in through the 21st century, how do we provide room for the original people and their continuing political entities to participate in our our democracy. The the voice is that proposal. It's not a proposal for for conflict. It's a proposal for harmony and it's not divisive. There have been 474 native title determinations in Australia recognising different rights for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. It's not about being divisive. It's about recognising status and trying to figure out a way forward. Thank you. Okay, Tony. Jacinto, Tony says uh, this proposal is for harmony. It's not divisive. Your response? Uh, I guess I would argue that it's already demonstrated itself to be divisive through the processes that it's taken so far. Um, And I I guess I would suggest that um, the... um, while the Prime Minister has, you know, suggested to the Australian people that, uh, you know, it's it's a modest proposal, it, it won't lend itself to the possibility of litigation, um, you know, it, it won't have the power to have a say over, um, you know, everything, all decisions through Parliament but those that are specific to Aboriginal Australians. Well, the working group, members of the working group have... Uh, turned around and said the complete opposite. So it's already demonstrating divisiveness through the Prime Minister telling us one lot of things and then working group members saying other things. Um, The fact that um, the working group in the end have managed to um, create something that they've wanted regardless of... Um, the the concerns um, that Mark Dreyfus had, uh, the, the the seeking uh, legal advice 
on the matter of, you know, including reference to the executive and what that might mean, despite those concerns, uh, the Prime Minister has folded and ultimately he does not have control over this process. That to me is a demonstration of divisiveness already, despite the fact that um, it, it, it's claimed that it's about bringing us together uh, we, we've had the Human Rights Commissioner recently argue that in fact it doesn't recognise equality uh, in, in terms of human rights. It, it is um, providing the opportunity for an Indigenous voice to have um, a say in matters regarding any issue really and any issue that 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 is concerning for Indigenous Australians is concerning for Australians, all Australians. So therefore, the voice will have a say over issues that impact all of Australia. But other Australians don't have the same opportunity at having that say. And as far as I'm concerned, that is divisive. Warren, Shireen makes the point that the 1967 referendum is still unfinished business and there's overwhelming support for some kind of constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. Uh, But she makes it clear that the preamble that then Prime Minister John Howard put to the people in the 1999 referendum uh, was overwhelmingly rejected. Uh, Your response? It's very simple. I was alive in 1967. Uh, My older brothers and sisters actually campaigned in the 67 referendum. Uh, uh, Cherie's right in regard to uh, its there is still unfinished business to be done within the Constitution. Uh, The thing about the Constitution, and and people talk about symbolism uh, not being strong, was that within two years, three years of that uh, 67 uh, uh, constitutional change, virtually every state government in, in Australia got rid of discriminatory laws against Aboriginals. So in a very short time, three five years, these all disappeared. And then what happened was in the late 60s you had people like John Gordon bringing forward the uh, AB study uh, policy which was to help Aboriginal kids get to school, help people going along, uh, help people get to universities and a whole wide range of things started to happen. Uh, Neville Bonner was uh, in 1971 was appointed to the Senate and in 1972 one was elected to the Senate. You had uh, you know, had a number of state, uh, Northern Territory, uh, Queensland, all within a few years, elected Aboriginal people to those uh, to those uh, uh, p- parliaments. You had uh, you have uh, organisations that were set up: the Aboriginal Medical Services, the Aboriginal Legal Services, and a wide range of other things that were set up in that during that period. And then you've seen that, that like when I was a kid. Uh, Charles Perkins and uh, John Moriarty come to our town and we knew he was, and I always remind John Moriarty about this, that I was a six-year-old kid and he was a university graduate, is that um, uh, was we didn't even know what a university was but we thought it was important because people were talking in whispers about these two men coming to our community. You could count on one hand how many Aboriginal people were going to university. Now it's thousands. Uh, You've got doctors, you've got uh, uh, accountants, you've got engineers. I was going to say lawyers. But Warren, still no no Indigenous constitutional recognition. 
We are recognition. Whether people like it or not, we are recognised in the constitution because we're citizens of this country, and as as citizens of this country, we are. Uh, everything about the constitution affects us, just as it affects everyone else, and 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 this is why I find it strange that people will say it's only it's only about things that affect Aboriginal people. I was told last year when I stood up and said, well, that means everything because we're Australian citizens. So every law that goes through, every policy that goes through is about us. And so so I said it is going to affect a lot of things. You look at uh, what's her name on the weekend, um, Megan Davis, professor at New South Wales University, professor of law. She said it's everything. Uh, you see, Noel Pearson said it is everything. Well, on that note, let me put my final question to the, the last uh, panellist um, before we take questions, and that is that the Prime Minister at Gama last year did say uh, that if The Voice proposes something should be done, quote, it would be a very brave government to say it should not be done. Now, uh, former Attorney General Neil Brown, the former Prime Minister John Howard, the former uh, High Court Justice uh, Ian Callanan, they've said that this means that The Voice could very well provide cover for an activist government to legislate radical policy without any real democratic consent. Your response? Just don't see how that could be possible, sorry. Um, This doesn't change the workings of democracy at all. So how could any government or parliament enact a law without the ordinary votes in parliament? Um, All this is, to be very clear, is an advisory voice right, advisory, non-binding, no veto. So I disagree that it would be a very brave government. I think sometimes... The 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 Prime Minister did say that. Yeah, I'm giving you my opinion. Um, Sometimes sometimes an advisory voice will be followed. Sometimes it won't be followed. The more effective it is in its advocacy, the more targeted and strategic it is in its advocacy, the more likely it will be followed. But the whole point of this idea is that you want the advice to be implemented because you want this to create a cultural, political cultural change whereby there is a spirit of true partnership, right? So right at the start when parliaments and governments are thinking about laws and policies about, say, amendments to the Native Title Act, um, a sacred site is going to be abolished, things like that, closing the gap policies, suicide prevention in Indigenous communities. We hope that when government decision makers know that they are making a policy about Indigenous communities, there will be early partnership and therefore advice uh, will be followed that will lead to better decisions and better practical outcomes in those communities. But on this question of scope, I think some common sense and flexibility is truly needed Because the greatest benefit of this proposal will be when Parliament, let's say Parliament is enacting or government is thinking about an environmental or climate change policy. Um, Now, that is not a policy that directly targets Indigenous people, but as we've seen from the Wild Rivers controversies up in Cape York, sometimes environmental policies can have a disproportionate or unfair impact on underdeveloped Indigenous land. Right, so it can curtail the economic development opportunities uh, for some Indigenous communities. Now, we hope, I would hope, that The Voice can provide proactive advice um, saying, oh, listen, you just want to think about how this policy might affect our communities, maybe it can be improved, and the hope would be that that could be taken on board and the policy would be improved with better outcomes for Indigenous people as a result. Thank you, Shireen. 
Now it's time for Q&A. And our first question comes from Salvatore there at the back. Thanks, Sick. Salvatore Babones from the University of Sydney. Thank you, Tom. Uh, United Nations First uh, Nations people elect their representatives on the basis of one person, one vote. Canadian First Nations peoples elect their representatives on the basis of one person, one vote. The Sami parliament in Norway is elected on the basis of one person, one vote. How come I haven't heard a single person in the Australian debate suggest that an Indigenous voice to parliament should be elected on the basis of one person, one vote? Hmm. Tony. Um, Well, I, I can't answer as to what you've read. I don't know what you've read or not read. But what the voice design principles talk about is um, being um, uh, ensuring that the the processes are culturally uh, informed, and and what that means is in places like Eastern Arnhem Land, where uh, where the the old man that has just passed come from, they don't have elections. They know who their leaders are and that their, their culture operates to ensure that those leaders maintain those positions. And so my understanding of the voice design principles is it's just leaving open the, the possibility that if we are truly going to respect First Peoples, that we respect their, their decision-making and governance structures. And in my own uh, part of the world, in central Queensland, we know who the elders are who speak for us. We don't need to have an election. We might have one, but but um, it, surely it would be uh, an act of, of uh, that's entirely inconsistent with self-determination if we were told that we'd have to have an election. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that's answered your question. Well, flip side, do you want to go there, Shireen? Or? Oh, just, yep. just, just to add to that, you know, Jacinta raised the good point that this shouldn't be a top-down structure that erases Indigenous diversity across the country. The Yolngu are different to the Yorta Yorta down south and so on. So I think what Tony's just explained respects the fact that communities across the country are different and they might organise themselves and represent themselves differently. This is, and as Warren in the past has argued as well, this needs to be about a bottom-up voice that truly empowers grassroots Indigenous communities around the country and respects their difference and allows for different views to emanate through and allows for them to represent themselves differently if they want to. A flip side to... Just on that. Uh, 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 Warren, yep. My name was mentioned, verbalised, I think, the word. Uh, I still do. I still do believe it's got to come out from the First Nations. Well, I, yeah, sorry, Jacinda, yep. Sorry. sorry, I just wanted to respond um, to the process that um, Tony referred to with regard to... Uh, you know, as somebody who has um, grown up with Warburi culture and Warburi, uh, if you want to call it governance, um, I find it deeply concerning, especially as an advocate of um, domestic and family violence, that in many communities, communities are often run by um, those who are powerful because the, their means of attaining power um sometimes involve violence, um, threatening behaviour um, and this is something that obviously does vary from um, community to community but there are vulnerable voiceless people in many communities who don't get heard because of the leadership in some of those communities and it doesn't lend itself to um, 
what I believe should be a fair representation for Indigenous Australians. It is much more of the, uh, in, in traditional terms, the um, the fittest survive, if you like, and 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 from my own experience, um, quite often the most aggressive uh, are often the leaders of communities, and that is something that in many communities that I've advocated for in terms of cultural reform along those lines. And so there is a lot of work, a lot of work to be done before we can be allowing for a um, some sort of process to take, pa- take place that can be um, basically interpreted however that group decide they, they, they choose this is traditional culture, this is how we're going to do it. We've seen a lot of reinvented culture as well now being – passed off as traditional culture. So where does it start? Where does it end, I guess? Many, can I, uh, can I just – Tony, quickly, yep. I'll, I'll just add, and it, it's a little bit um, flippant, but uh, I think the, the process that Jacinta just descri- described of of, uh, of powerful voices and, and people uh, pushing each other around it would aptly describe many of the political parties in Australia. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, I, can I give a personal personal thing? 2001, I was on the, I was working on the ALP Senate campaign and we were going into Aboriginal communities, having meetings, having scones and tea and all that type of stuff and talking about policies and that. Community after community I went into, people pulled me aside because I was the only Aboriginal in, uh, with the group of ALP people coming out to meet with those communities. And that the women pulled me aside and community after community, they talked about the issues within their, within their community and uh, of violence and abuse, child abuse and stuff like that. And me coming out of that campaign was like, their exp- uh, and I, was, was, I was just shattered about how much uh, there is problems in, in a lot of our communities, not all of them but a, a lot of them from that personal experience that I had. And I see a lot of this stuff n- not changing in some of these communities. It's, it's, it's something, one of the things we've got to really face is the alcohol, the, the crime and the things that are happening in Alice Springs is because of problems behind that and we have to focus on those problems to stop it. Yeah, what, one of the arguments that uh, the advocates of The Voice make is uh, the case for a treaty. Now, Angela from Brisbane, Queensland, makes the point that Australia differs from other Western nations that grew out of British colonies such as Canada and New Zealand because there was never a treaty process between our Indigenous people and the colonising power. Native American tribal sovereignty is also recognised in the US Constitution, she says, and she concludes treaties were not always complied with or executed in good faith, but Australia is quite unique in that we don't have those foundation documents that even recognise the existence of First Nations people. Can't we finally redress this wrong? Jacinta Warren. I'll bow to... um, uh, to, uh to, to Tony on this stuff because he's more of an expert about this. But for my readings and for my observation and that I've, I've you know, you you you, you, do, and you go to America and you go to Canada and you do see these sovereignty issues. They have their, especially the United States, and that you they they have their own police force, they have their own courts, they have those own things that are happening within those within within those areas, and and they are they're like a 
a territory, a state that uh, operate within the United States, and uh, and I, you know, I've looked and observed those type of things. Um, yes, I do agree that we are one of the the odd ones out. That we never had a treaty, we never had those discussions. It was all terra nullas up until recently, and and so we're coming from behind the eight ball to get on top of a lot of this stuff. Okay, next question comes from James Phillips. Can we get that? Just a question here. James Phillips, of course, is uh, one of our board members. Thank you, James. Thank you. Um, Shireen, I'm sorry I didn't hear your last name, so I hope you don't mind me, Morrison. Thank you. Um, your comments about the um, uh, constitutional conservatives, Lisa and Craven, I wonder if you're being quite fair to them because whilst it's true that the language in paragraph two of the proposed constitutional amendment is almost exactly the same as that in the um, 2014 submission by Toomey and others. I think, did you say you were one of the others? No. I was working with the group. You were working with them. Um, And it was published in the 2015 report. That was all in respect of um, representations to the executive and parliament in respect of proposed legislation. And I think that well, that's no, that's that's, that's incorrect. Oh, no. Okay. Well, yeah. the the text of the proposed submission from two thousand and fourteen was set out there, and it was in respect of proposed legislation. Uh, let me just clarify because I know the clause from two thousand and fifteen. So the the first couple of clauses are almost exactly the same as um, what is currently proposed. Where the phrase proposed laws was used, and you're right, that first version used the phrase proposed laws, but it only used it in relation to Clause 4, which talked about, um, which required parliamentarians to consider the advice of the voice in relation to proposed laws with respect to Indigenous peoples. Now, as the drafting developed over the following years, that requirement to consider was dropped and the reference to proposed laws was dropped as That's well. That's right. Changing the subject. Now, this is a question from Lydia in Chatswood, Sydney, and uh, she wants me to put this to the negative side. The Prime Minister is among many people who say that a no vote at the referendum will uh, damage Australia's reputation in the world. Uh, a rejection of the constitutional recognition put forward in The Voice would hurt our international relations, as the Prime Minister says. Your response. Jacinta. Thank you. Well, I think it goes back to what Salvatore was making uh, earlier with his remarks around um, Indigenous peoples around the world um, having only one vote within their nation. My dealing certainly with uh, ambassadors of foreign countries um, suggests to me that there is concern um, that we would in fact go down this path, uh, especially uh, European nations who only know all too well what um, what dividing countries along the lines of race can do to a nation. And, you know, you, you don't have to look far back in history um, to see those sorts of horrific outcomes. Um, I think as a nation we are one of the most successful multicultural nations. We are one of the most tolerant nations um, in the world uh, and it is the very reason why um, we have people from other parts of the world um, travel here to become part of this great country and I would suggest that uh, Albanese's language is much like most of his language around this debate, it's emotional blackmail. Um, 
And I disagree that we would be looked down upon. Just like I disagree with notions that where I come from in the Northern Territory, we're full of redneck racists and victim Aboriginal people. When the Northern Territory is the territory that elected three Indigenous women to the federal parliament. Um, and I think we don't do enough to recognise how much of a, a, an incredible nation uh, we are and, and comments like the comment that uh, the Prime Minister made uh, don't do us any favours. Well, is the PM's rhetoric here uh, international blackmail? I mean, I should stress um, Shireen and Tony, uh, Andrew Neil, one of the, the world's most distinguished print and broadcast journalists, is in the country. He's a publisher of The Spectator magazine and he'll be speaking at CIS next Wednesday night here. And the last time Andrew Neil spoke here five years ago, he made the point that in many parts of the world for long periods of time, you need very good peripheral vision to see Australia on the map. But to the extent that Australia does get attention, it's usually positive that we're seen as just interset a, a very vibrant, liberal, tolerant, multiracial society. So following on from uh, Lydia's question, um, do you think that if there is a no vote at the referendum, would that really hurt our re reputation in the world? Tony. Firstly, I just want to take a step back to to, um, to something that Jacinta was addressing. People look to Canada as a great democracy, as a place of fairness and equity. The Canadian Constitution has had in it since 1985 a provision that provides for recognition of the Aboriginal rights and inherent rights, the treaty rights and inherent rights of the Aboriginal people of, of Canada. Has it, has it caused the sky to fall in in Canada? No, it hasn't. And I, I will say this, having travelled to Canada, that, that the, the culture and the spirituality of the, of the Native Americans is very, very similar to our own. Very similar. You could take their articulation of, of their cosmos and their spirituality and change the words to um, uh, Kukuyalanji instead of uh, Snohomish and you wouldn't know. So, so, so you want me to answer the question? No, no, no. Well, you can get back to that question. But just on that note, though, let me put it back to uh, the negative side that uh, why can't we do a Canada with a lot of harmony and less division? Warren. Uh, I actually, people probably wouldn't remember, I actually back in 2015 put forward a notion about that, which was about that the, that race law. I said it should be, you know, because I looked at Canada, I looked at the United States, I looked at New Zealand and that, where they, and they have those clauses and protection of sovereign Indigenous rights. And, and, I, and I learnt also that uh, Canadians call themselves Aboriginals too, so that was interesting. Uh, but uh, which was that, you know, the Commonwealth Government should be able to make agreements with First Nation people, and that just got lost in all the rhetoric and all the arguments that that went along that ground. Uh, I believe that Australia, and I, I, I concur with um, uh, Jacinda on this, is that uh, you know we are a tolerant and very respected and incredible nation, uh, and people aren't jumping on boats uh, to leave Australia uh, unless they're on P and O, and that. Um, <laughs> People and people are coming, are coming here and risking their lives to come here. Uh, but for for me, it is about. 
I, I looked at that about the, the treaty rights and working with um, Aboriginal people and work and Torres Strait Islander people and having the Commonwealth to have those powers in regard to that. And that was one of my arguments back in the early days. Uh, my concern with the with the voice, of course, it, we set, we're setting up regional and local groups and that, which is bypassing those nations who are should have those recognitions and that. And we could be like Canada, we could be like New Zealand, we could be like uh, I'm talking about positively in regard to how we have our relationships re- with each other. Remember, the issue here is not so much constitutional recognition. I think there's a broad consensus that there should be Indigenous constitutional recognition. The question is about the voice. So does Canada have a voice to Parliament? That's that's what the counter-argument would be. How would you respond to that, Shereen? Well, I think it's very common to see similar Western democracies worldwide have similar mechanisms for giving voice to Indigenous peoples. It's very, very common. Um, Canada has very substantive recognition of Indigenous rights in their constitution. They've also got the Assembly of First Nations, which is a representative body giving voice to the First Nations, and the Assembly of First Nations partners with the Canadian government on policy development, and they forge agreements and they work in partnership together. Um, When we were developing this proposal, Proposal. We did a trip to New Zealand um, in 2014 and we were very inspired by what we saw there. Now, that is a liberal democracy quite similar to Australia. They've got seven reserved Maori seats in Parliament. Additionally, they've got the Maori Council outside Parliament, which again is a Maori voice to Parliament and the executive and advisory body. Um, and can I just get back to Australia is an incredibly successful multicultural democracy. I don't for one second deny that. But I do think that we know, we know that we can do better in our relationship with Indigenous affairs. We know that. And on that trip to um, New Zealand, and I'm, I'm married to a Kiwi, right, um, they, they're, not sure, they're not sure why this is so controversial, like, they're founded in the Treaty of Waitangi. They've got reserved Maori seats in Parliament. They've got the Maori Council. Canada's got something similar. The US has got something similar. Okay, so Scandinavian the, countries is, have is, got is something similar. Is the Prime similar. Minister right to say that a rejection of the voice would hurt our international relations? I think, well, I think the Kiwis would be raising their eyebrows. I can't speak any further than okay, that. Okay, next just, question. Can I, can oh, I sorry, just... Jacinda, and then we'll go to questions. On, yep. on, that, on that note... Um, uh, we recently, and forgive me, I, I, I can't remember her name, but we had a Maori woman travel to Australia to um, heed the warning of uh, what the voice might do because she understands on the ground in New Zealand as to the outcomes of certainly the Waitangi Tribunal, which is now in place, and the way in which they um, have veto power over um, the um, New Zealand government um, to the extent that an example of uh, a policy that they um, uh, they managed to uh, encourage the government to take on was that during COVID, uh, while New Zealand were rolling out their vaccination, uh, they had they had prioritised prioritised the elderly to receive vaccinations first. The Waitangi Tribunal argued that. Uh, that it was Maoris who were um, particularly, uh, you know, of of, of great, yeah, uh, greater risk in comparison to everybody else. So therefore, they reprioritise the rollout of their vaccines to give young Maori people the vaccine over the elderly 
um, population who were in fact non-Māori. And as far as I'm concerned, um, that is not equality and that is um, an example of where things can go terribly wrong on the basis of race. Okay, next question, Sophie York. Um, Thank you to everyone involved in this debate and to CIS for hosting it. Um, there's a lot of goodwill and and respect for our Indigenous fellow Australians and I think that everyone shares the desire to improve um, the life quality. Um, th- we've established in this debate that there's going to be no democratic representation in The Voice. I just had a hypothetical. If, if a decision, just assume we get The Voice in the form that's wanted or proposed, what if a decision was made by the elected government of the day and it's not in accordance with the voice's suggestion. So the dispute goes to the High Court and there's seven judges on the High Court and a majority um, decides that, oh well, you, um, you know, four judges decides that, oh well, you didn't um, find in accordance with the voice's suggestion. So back to the drawing board, um, government of the day. Um, what then you've actually, and, and that becomes um, the High Court has supremacy over the elected government of the day um, and, and you can't usurp that decision. So four unelected judges would then have power. The second point is we had at SIC, it was shut down due to graft and corruption because Parliament had the ability to do that in a bipartisan way. What if the voice does become beset by that um, what then? What are, what, are the, Sophie, what are the options then? Thank you, Sophie. Shireen. So it's just totally wrong that an advisory voice, that the High Court could force the Parliament to follow an advisory voice. It's just advisory. So it's, its advice is non-binding. It can't be followed. Now, the controversy at the moment about whether one day a High Court might possibly ask a decision maker to do something is only about whether they would ask them to merely consider the advice not to follow it, right? So there is no suggestion that the advice is non-binding. Let's be very clear about that. Um, what was the second point? Oh, ATSIC. ATSIC. So, uh, sorry. Was, yeah. So ATSIC had... Abolished stri- by the Howard government, I think, in 2004. Yep. Oh. Yeah. It was bipartisan, yep. yep. ATSIC had strengths and weaknesses. Um, I think what was missing there now, it should have been evolved and improved, Bad people should have been chucked out, transparency rules improved, accountability improved. It shouldn't have been abolished. Now, that is the difference here, a commitment, a commitment to giving Indigenous communities a fairer say so that when problems arise, as they inevitably will in any institution designed and run by humans, there'll be problems, it should be evolved and improved and the legislative flexibility allows that to happen. You know, we have plenty of corrupt politicians in Parliament. No one ever says, oh, Let's quickly abolish Parliament, you know. No, you improve the rules, you improve the accountability and you improve the institution. I just wanted to, sorry, uh, yep. Warren, I just wanted to add that it's not the case that it, it, people won't be democratically elected. It, the, the process provides for election or if there's some other mechanism, then that's, a, that's up to that group to decide and apply themselves. But my expectation is that, in most of the country, it will be by election, and and um, the 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 proposal doesn't say that it won't be by election. Yeah, just, uh, uh, just to, yep. yeah, I, I was I was at the table because I was vice president of the Labor Party at the time. 
when the this decision, is when ATSIC was suspended uh, by, the, yeah, by in 2005. Yep. And uh, this decision, and it was a bipartisan, unanimous bipartisan decision to do it, was be, uh, because uh, they were they were told by the Labor Party at the time that the the two people who were under investigation don't re-elect them to the chairs, otherwise we're going to ha- we're going to have to cross the floor, and and that's what happened. They re-elected them. Uh, they cross, and so the Labor Party crossed the floor and joined with the um, with the with the government of the day, the Howard government, to and because there were very serious allegations that were made, and and uh, in, and they had to face the the reality. of my advice to them was was what Neville Rand did in in the uh, magistrate courts was he stepped aside, he didn't resign, he stepped aside. Uh, Jack Ferguson took over as acting premier, and then the the, the courts and uh, and the royal commission and police investigations followed through. Uh, that was my advice to them. They said no, they're not going to step aside, and uh, and so that's where we got to the situation of ADSIC being then abolished. Time for one more question. I think it's Peter. Yes, thanks very much. Um, look, I spent ten years of my life in the outback during the winter months putting on events for Indigenous and non-Indigenous students in remote areas. And we did 58 events. They were quite successful in getting young students to school and to to go to school each and every day during the period that we were involved. The question I have is, what is the voice? And most importantly, how will the invoice improve the educational outcomes of young Indigenous students in remote areas? Shireen or Tony? So the voice is an Indigenous advisory body chosen by Indigenous people, Indigenous communities, to give advice to government and parliament on laws and policies made about Indigenous affairs. So the hope is that the voice will enable Indigenous communities to work closely with governments to improve all policies that matter and in which outcomes need to be urgently, urgently improved. And um, that's not happening at the moment. You know, we don't have Indigenous people in their communities sitting down with the decision makers who develop education for those kids, um, figuring out how to make things better. That doesn't happen, and that's the whole point of this proposal. Uh, Tony, with the resources and uh, revenue uh, from not just government but also from charities be better directed instead of the voice, instead of towards a voice but towards, uh, you know, genuinely disadvantaged remote communities? Um, there's, there's genuine disadvantage across the country, not just in the remote communities. And it's, I, it's particularly I, evident in the well, remote communities. Yeah, look... There, there is huge disadvantage in Townsville. There's huge disadvantage in Cairns. The, the, the Premier of Queensland is talking about building a new youth detention centre in Cairns. It will be filled up with Aboriginal kids. It's not just in the remote centres. And I've been to remote places in, in the Territory where they have a 95% attendance rate at school. It's not all communities. So the, the, what The Voice will do... It should be able to do. Um, you know, we're all crystal ball gazing here a little bit. But what it will be able to do is say, 
those of you who are involved in the policy about how how money is spent and how the curriculum's uh, uh, developed and what languages the, the students are being taught in and how how the, um, the the education is delivered, you need to speak to the local people, the traditional owners, the First Nations, and and figure out how to work, work best with that community. That's what The Voice will be able to do. It'll be able to monitor those policymakers and those program delivery people and say, well, you didn't do this. They'll be able to ask questions about it. And we can't do that at the moment. Tony, thank you. Final thoughts, Jacinta. Um, thank you. I, I will just reiterate what... Um, so the the delegation of uh, Indigenous people from around the country uh, that Warren and I brought to Parliament the other week, um, what they said was that they want elected individuals, uh, those of us who are paid by the taxpayer, to represent them in Parliament, as is our job to do through our democracy. And that is the problem that we have is the fact that those of us who there are those of us who are elected who are uh, too concerned about appearing to make the wrong decision or called out and called names, and so therefore this might be an ideal way for them to handball this issue elsewhere instead of doing their job, doing our jobs to represent, as Shireen was just saying sit down with people in community, which is what I do, and help in terms of creating policy, whether it's about education, uh, whether it's about health. Um, I, I put bills to the parliament. I, I put motions to the parliament doing exactly that, talking to people in those communities who are affected, attempting to amplify the voices who are largely ignored, who have been ignored through this process through the voice. It is my job to do that. It's what I've been tasked to do. It's what I was voted to do. And that is what we need to do better in this country. Warren. Uh, I, was, I was the uh, elected councillor at Dubbo City Council uh, many years ago and I was deputy mayor for a while. What I discovered when I was in that room is that my vote was equal to everyone else in that room. And I could uh, work with my fellow councillors, I could fight with them, I could do things and we could do changes in that. I've always been a believer that you, uh, you need to, you know, we need to get more Aboriginals into Parliament. And I worked on that. And, and we've got those amazing people who are sitting in Parliament today. And I predict that over the next two elections, those figures will go up to about 20 uh, people who will, be, who will be elected that Parliament and we'll have ministers and we'll have a whole wide range of people that are doing it. Uh, I, uh, I beg to be corrected here, but I think it's about 34 Aboriginals who sit in Parliament around Australia in all different jurisdictions. This is the way forward, uh, economic development, education and dealing with people on the ground will make the differences and that will empower Aboriginal ma uh, people to make a change. Uh, me, to me, I haven't been convinced in regard to the, the voice being anything that 
is going over a, a, a layer over tra- traditional owners and First Nations and that it's going to have a huge bureaucracy because if they're going to be looking at all uh, legislation and policies, they're going to need experts in every different area. They're going to need support services. We're just going to build this massive thing okay. where money should be spent out there on the ground. And final word to Sheree Morris. Oh. I'm just a bit disturbed because it kind of sounds like you're both saying that nothing needs to change because now that well sorry but now that now that now that we've got indigenous people in parliament things are going to you know improve now let's be clear indigenous parliamentarians just like indian parliamentarians and greek parliamentarians and caucasian parliamentarians they have to represent all the australians in their electorates and they have to represent their political parties okay so that indigenous parliamentarians can't only represent indigenous people and i think it's fantastic that there's so many indigenous australians in parliament but that didn't prevent alcohol management plans in the Northern Territory being scrapped against the wishes of local communities. It didn't, that's just a fact. There were 11 Indigenous parliamentarians in there, yet nobody could get the government to listen to those communities pleading, pleading to have their voices heard and to have a better plan. So I I think it's great to have Indigenous parliamentarians in Parliament, but I think it's also fair enough for Indigenous communities to have a voice in laws and policies made about them. To be continued. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank our guests, Tony McAvoy, Sheree Morris, Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. For decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice working hard to promote sound liberal principles. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel, then click the notification bell. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our classical liberal cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved.